The title of today's sermon is the Oikos Formula. Oikos um, is a Greek word for household. But the question that we've been looking at is why do we baptize infants? We have many church members who are coming from various backgrounds. And at this point in our church life, this is something that we are discussing. We began by noticing that there is a subtle difference in how one sees what the baptism is. From Baptist viewpoint and from the Presbyterian viewpoint. And we've been using the distinction supplied by Sinclair Ferguson. It's helpful. He says, for Baptists, baptism, which is a sign, is what the believer has done in response to Christ. Baptism is a testimony to his faith, and it symbolizes the believer's faith. And the priority lies with you, what you have done. For us Presbyterians, he says, baptism is first a sign of what Christ has done and of all that is in him to be received in faith. We are not denying the subjective side, but only after that we want to recognize that it is first and foremost is about God and what God has done in Christ. Then it will demand your faith in response to that. Subtle difference. But I want you to notice that. Even our confession, 27, chapter 27, Westminster Confession, Uh, begins the topic of the sacraments in this way. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. It's not first and foremost a sign of your faith, but it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and His benefits. Did you hear that? And to confirm our interest in Him. Obviously, that's saving interest. So the right order is the sacraments or the signs are given to us to point us to God's saving promises or the acts of God that had happened in Christ Jesus for our salvation. Calvin's definition of the sacrament The sign, but in the New Testament we use the term sacraments. But Calvin's definition is this. The signs are there to attest and ratify the benevolence of the Lord toward us. This subtle difference, how you look at what the baptism is, is important and I believe it has a practical value for Christians. Maybe you don't have infants to baptize. But if you're a Christian, that distinction is crucial. And listen to my reasoning. 
If baptism is primarily seen as the proof of your saving faith, what happens when or if your faith becomes weak? Then that sign, along with your weakened or defeated faith, is sunk. Precisely because you have received that sign as a result of your saving faith, which at that time was strong and active. But when you set the sign in the right order, as I've been, we've been trying to understand, God gave the visible signs to help our weaknesses then, you may look upon the sign that does not have to depend on the well-being or status of your faith at the moment. And by the operation of the Holy Spirit, it could pull you out of your spiritual low point. But if you have been a Christian for any length of time, we know better that we do not put our trust in our own faith. In the beginning of your Christian stage, Christian life, there are times where you are spiritually high, walking on the clouds. But I'm telling you, there will come a time when you, you, give, you become so weakened in your, in your own Christian walk and you wonder whether you are Christian or not. It will come, or it may come then the signs are good news to you because it will point not first and foremost about your faith, but about God's faithful promises, His actions, His redemption. Then, yes, our faith may be strengthened as you utilize that sign that God has given us. That could be also illustrated from the scriptures, I believe. Last Sunday, we looked at Abram's life. Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Genesis 15, what did we see in Genesis 15? God promises, His promises to Abram, and he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So we said in Genesis 15, he became what we could say, sola fide believer. He believed, and Romans 4 affirms that. And Romans, uh, in Genesis 17, God appears again, and God gives him the covenant sign of circumcision. So, Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Do you know what happens in Genesis 16? The gap, 13-year-plus gap. Well, Genesis 16 is about Abram going into Hagar. The Egyptian maid. And they produce Ishmael. So we could think of it in this way. 15, chapter 15, he was a strong believer. He was justified by faith alone in coming Christ alone, if we could put it that way. Though he was a believer like that, in Genesis 16, just like many of us, he was weakened in his faith. He couldn't wait. He didn't see the result right away. Where is my heir? And he goes and he produces Ishmael. So chapter 17, we could say God reappears to Abram 
and gives him sign, not really to prove that he is a believer, though that certainly is included, but to remind him that each and every time he sees his own circumcision, that he is not reminded of his faith. He's reminded of God and his promises. Then his faith will be strengthened. That's, that's the pattern that we have seen over and over again. Also, last Sunday, we have seen in that circumcision command in Genesis 17, if you read it carefully, there are some striking features in it. God tells him this, that every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. And then, he says, a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money, again, repeat it again, shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. In covenant giving, at this point in Genesis 17, only person who possessed saving faith would be Abram. Sarah or Sarah or Sarah, maybe, but I don't think so. But the covenant sign was granted not simply to, only to Abram or Abraham, but as you have heard, to the infants and to the servants and foreign servants, whether born into his family, the household, or bought with money. Twice God emphasizes, in case Abraham forgets. It is a strange case when you think about it, because when in the infant baptism debate, when we talk about circumcision, by the way, to preview next Sunday, I need to draw the connection between circumcision and baptism. They say, the Baptist friends will say, why are we talking about circumcision? Circumcision is given to the Old Testament people, to the Jewish nation or Israelites. It has nothing to do with new covenant sign or signs. We understand. But in the Genesis 17, we learn this circumcision covenant is, will include infants and even servants and foreigners. And I said last Sunday, God's intention then seems to be clear, that is. He wants his covenant people, who, we don't know why, but people who are born into believers' faith in that household, to be set apart from birth, from the surrounding pagan nations, by giving them his covenant signs. The main way that God saw in his people Generation after generation is not. You are somehow born into that family, but why don't you go outside of this faith and then explore some of the world religions out there and draw your own conclusions and come back? Then I will give you the sign as proof of your salvation. No. The ordinary way of raising next generation Christians is by giving them in this analogous way 
By giving them the physical sign, setting them apart so that they know by birth, from birth, they are set apart from the world and they are included at least by external signs. And in time, they will repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. So prodigal son, people coming and living, going out to the world and living all kinds of uh, ways of uh, sinful lives and coming back in repentance is not a normal way of raising next generation. In Genesis 14, Abram goes on a rescue mission to rescue his nephew Lot. And it says this in the Bible, Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive he led out his trained man, born in his house, 318. Did you hear that? He has, a, he has a private army. But he goes out with 318 men who are born in his house. Who, who, who are they? Probably orphans or people that came into his house through business relationships, whatever relationships he raised these, these men in his household. So, a few decades later, when we hear in Genesis 17, God commands him to circumcise every male in your household. They are not employees in our modern sense. They are bound by even birth, allegiance, tradition, custom, all that they do, all these people are somehow included in their household and is more than president or employee relationship, stranger relationship. In our modern understanding of salvation in Christ alone and personal individual salvation is obviously important. We are not saying it is not important. If you employ that reason strictly, then this is what Abram must do on that day in Genesis 17. He has to say, Probably Abraham will cut his own skin, but he will tell Ishmael, half-Egyptian son, I'm sorry, son, you were a mistake. I should have waited a bit longer on God's promises, but I gave in, and God says, you are not the true heir. Isaac will be uh, so I am sorry, but I cannot give you this sign of circumcision to you. Or to other men. Though I consider you as my sons and brothers, but I am sorry to say that you are not included in this covenant. I'm going to set up a Sunday school, something like that, and need to teach you about this Yahweh God. And when you are convinced, then come back to me. Then maybe I will circumcise you as I see your saving faith. Can man see somebody's saving faith? Compare that to God's wisdom and mercy when he said, Every male among you, a servant who is born in the house or is bought with money. And I try to emphasize. It's not an odd thing here, you see what we witness. But you are witnessing God's gracious grace, if I could put it that way. God does not simply say, you, Abraham, I chose you. And only your bloodline will be circumcised. No, God was gracious enough to include all of the male who would become the head of households. And say, 
Give them the sign. Why, why would God do that? I thought about it, and this is my conclusion. To emphasize God's grace. No one earns salvation in front of God. Also, to let them know God's desire that they be saved by giving them the sign that will preach the gospel to them. So we learn from Genesis 17, it is not a Jewish nation, uh, marking of the Jewish nation alone, because from the beginning, foreigners are included. It's not biological, the salvation is not, it's not ethnic, it's not racial, there's no racial purity here. It's not about social status, but to emphasize that salvation is by God's grace alone, maybe that is why. God said all of that to Abram or Abraham. When we come to the New Testament, John chapter 1 says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were given the marks or the signs, the external physical signs, but we wouldn't say God was content with giving them external signs, physical signs. No. By giving them, God is demanding that they put their faith in Abram's God. And probably imagine that day, Abram calls all of the men in front of him. And think about it, these are all adults. And you are Abram, Abraham now. And you are commanded to circumcise all male. Don't you think that he had to explain why he's doing that? What if you're one of those men that says, Abram says, I have to do a little surgery on you. And you will stand in front of him in a most vulnerable position. You will wonder why. Why? You know, one time, maybe you think this is funny, but I thought, if you are going to make up a story that you encountered a God, 99-year-old man will not circumcise his own organ. What are the chances that you want to make up a story and, and do that to him? To everyone, but what I'm saying is, he had to explain why and what this means. And I cannot imagine uh, uh, any man in his household, probably now 1,000 men, let's say, running away. No, I don't want. I'm, I'm scared. I'm running away. And Abram says, "Drag him here, tie him down." No, we cannot imagine that. So circumcision was the sign that first and foremost pointed to God's promise. And yes, it demanded their faith as well. And from the beginning, God's promise to Abraham was what? All nations promise. You remember when he called him out of Ur, thus his hometown. Genesis 12, 3 says this, I will bless those who bless you, 
And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. And that you see in Genesis 17. By God's inclusion of the foreigner, slaves, the, all the people who were born and bought by him. By pure grace. You may say by, that, by coincidence. No, but by God's design. Who are included in Genesis 17 in his household. God was far more gracious than we could imagine him to be. He does not say, Ishmael, I'm sorry, not you. Foreigners, not you. It's just you, Isaac, and then so on. No. God, God gave them the signs. But you may ask, does that mean then, because all the men were circumcised, including infants and future generations of infants, does that mean we grant the sign of baptism first, like those men, and then ask them to believe? We don't say that. Uh, that's not what we see, just like our Baptist friends and our book of church order says this. Listen to this. The baptism of adults must await their public profession of faith in Christ. In that, the Baptist church and Presbyterian church, we are operating on the same basis. We don't grant baptism to, hey, welcome to our church. Do you, you like to be baptized today? And hopefully you will come to faith in Christ. We don't do that. But what we are talking about is the consistent pattern of inclusion of the children of believers. Well, we will see more next week. Now, if you could now, with that background, turn to these texts. Obviously, we, are not, we cannot spend too much time. But presuppose all that had happened in Genesis 6, 9, 15, 17. And then read the baptism formula that appears in book of Acts and beyond. You will notice when they had family, you will also see the family, the household means family, being baptized as well. And it is a striking feature. And if you pick up any book arguing for infant baptism, you will see this as household formula or family formula or the oikos formula. And it is one of the strongest, not, not a proof, I want to say, proof. But if you see these passages from the perspective of, from the Old Testament, there is nothing new or nothing strange happening. And let me read these sections to you for us. Acts 2, as you know, this is a Pentecost sermon. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children. For all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Anyway, in this gospel preaching, Peter mentions your children as well. Not that they will be automatically saved, but from covenant, family, unit, dealing, consistent pattern from the Old Testament. Now, Acts 10 is Cornelius. Now, there was a man at Caesarea, Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, that is Roman, right, of what was called Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God, this means 
Gentile who uh, has converted to Jewish religion. Devout man, one who feared God with all his household. Why include that? Every single one of his household. Uh, yeah, servants too. He is an important man. So everyone converted before the preaching of the gospel. I don't know, but that's how he pens it. Gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. In Acts 11, this is Peter recounting. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me and we entered the man's house, Cornelius' house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, that's Peter, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you. By which you will be saved, and you and all your household. Why include that phrase? You may say God supernaturally converted every man, everyone in that household. Maybe. Lydia, a woman, chapter 16. A woman named Lydia from the city of Tyatira, seller of purple fabrics. She's a businesswoman. Independent woman. Important woman. A worshiper of God. Same thing. Probably not of a Jewish heritage, but God-fearer, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She and her household had been baptized. Jailer. In the same passage, remember Paul and Silas, they were locked up in the prison and, and God frees them through a supernatural uh, earthquake. And listen to this. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because as you know, he had to pay with his own life if he loses his prisoners, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, What must I do to be saved? He asked. Is he asking spiritual question or physical question? Probably both. Maybe he's been listening to their prayers and, and singings and he wanted to find more about God. But he says, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Why include that is my question. Why your household? Why we keep bringing up household? We all affirm the faith in Christ alone saves. And each one has to believe. It is not automatic. It doesn't save just because you're baptized. We know that. But it's happening over and over again in the book of Acts. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set foot before them, rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. 
Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. The second part would be the adult baptism, obviously. First Corinthians, the last one. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Right, Baptists will say there are no, these are no arguments for infant baptism because none of the passages mention infants being baptized. Right, it does not prove that. But what is undeniable from this passage is that God's covenant dealing with family unit, at least his intention, has not changed from the Old Testament to the New. From the Old Testament perspective, if you spend time studying God's covenant dealing with his people from the Old Testament, this is not something strange, new phenomenon. In Jewish thinking, in Jewish thinking of God making covenants and granting them the sign, we could understand that this may include infants. Brian Chappell says this, every person identified as having a household present at his or her conversion also had the household baptized. And he says this, the frequency of the household baptism accounts demonstrates that it was normal and consistent with the ancient practice of the continuing Abrahamic covenant for heads of households to see that the covenant sign and seal was applied to all in their home. No evidence indicates that children were excluded from these households. Rather, 2,000 years of covenant practice, combined with the absence of any command to exclude children, indicate that household baptisms included infants. Infant baptism is not explicitly commanded, nor prohibited from any passages in the New Testament. That is why this is such a hard issue. And I thought the best way to explain this tradition that we receive in this church is by tracing God's consistent pattern of dealing with his people in his covenant making. There is no single proof that will prove to us that it is God's intention to baptize infants. But from the Old Testament's perspective, what God has done with Genesis in Genesis 17 uh, will be certainly a one argument for infant baptism. Last thing that I want to mention is by quoting Galatians 3.29. In Galatians, Apostle Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. What it is saying is that Abraham and all the benefits of Abraham is not simply for the Jewish nation or the descendants of that nation, but for all of us who come to Christ by grace of God, we are heirs of the same promise. 
And I will argue next Sunday, and we will leave it there next Sunday, the final one. The covenant sign of circumcision uh, did basically the same thing for the covenant sign and seal of baptism. Not exactly the same, but essentially the same thing. That's where we will uh, leave our study on the topic of infant baptism. May our God bless His appointed means to save sinners for His glory. Let's pray.